All right. So Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile uh, is one of the pastors of Anacostia River Church. He served as an elder and a pastor in churches in North Carolina, D.C., and the Cayman Islands. After a few years as a practicing Muslim, Thabiti was converted under the preaching of the gospel in Washington, D.C., area. He is the happy husband of his wife, Christy, the adoring father of three children. Uh, he enjoys kale. Uh, he is the author of several books, including The Life of God and The Soul of the Church, The Gospel for Muslims, What is a Healthy Church Member, and The Decline of African American Theology. Please welcome uh, Pastor Thabiti to the pulpit. I was having a good time at the conference till I got slandered there, talking about some kale. Y'all can have that. <laughs> Super food. Who made up that stuff, man? I mean, you know, if it was collard greens, we, we could talk, right? But I don't know who messed up kale. Anyways, evidence that the world has fallen into sin. Y'all all right? Man, let me first of all just say what an honor it is to be with you guys and to be sharing in God's Word together. For all of you who are especially a part of the Garden Church and One Hope, um, it's, it's a real privilege especially for me to be with you because of how much I respect and admire and love your pastor. Um, Joel is a faithful brother. He's been a, a real encouragement to me, um, and I have learned much about ministering uh, in a neighborhood uh, with vision by just observing Joel and the ways in which the Lord has shaped him and is using him. And so it's a real honor to share the pulpit with my brother and to be with you guys uh, for the conference and to be thinking about God's Word. So if you have the Bible, uh, turn it on. <laughs> open it with me if you're old school like me. Open it up to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, I think it's my task to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. No, I think it's the authority. The, bro the brother with sufficiency like, what? <laughs> it's my task to think with you about the authority of Scripture. And now uh, before we do that, let me offer a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, teach us to tremble at your word. For like you, your word is holy. And teach us to come to your word with reverence. For as we just heard, you are speaking to us through your word. It's not that you spoke past tense through your word, but that you are speaking even now, through this word which is alive and active and sharp. So grant us by your grace, O Lord, a heart ready to receive your word. And Lord, push out distraction so that we might give you attention appropriate to your holy name. If this word is your authority, and it is, oh Lord, bring us under it, we pray. Do this for your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do is start with something that struck my ears as I was listening to Joel. You may have heard him say something along the lines of his great concern for the church and for us as Christians is that we would escape the temptation of affirming the inerrancy of Scripture while living as if it weren't. That's a good pastoral observation. And what I want to suggest to you is, is that the authority of Scripture, the, not just the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, but the, the living beneath the authority of Scripture is how we escape that dilemma. So it's one thing to take God's word seriously as inerrant, 
It's another thing to take God's word seriously as how he exercises his rule in our lives. And essentially, this is what it means to say that God's word is authoritative or that it has authority. We might define authority as the, the right and the ability to rule. The right and the ability to rule. By right, we mean it has a legitimacy. It has a, a just claim upon us. And by ability, we mean power, the, the power to exercise that rule. And we all know this. We can feel it in an instant. Driving down the road, speed limit's 35. You say, I get 10 miles over. <laughs> right? So you're doing at least 45 and then you done got found yourself on a hill but didn't take your foot off the gas. And, and so now you're 15 miles over and you come down to the bottom of the hill and you see Jake sitting over there, right? And the heart sort of freezes up. You take your foot off the gas. You begin to coast and you hope if I don't touch the brakes, then the brake light don't come on. And maybe he doesn't know I'm slowing down, right? <laughs> in that moment, you're in the grip of this combination of power and ability of right and ability, of legitimacy and power, because you know he can pull you over and write you that ticket and maybe see you in court and there will be a fine to pay or some other kind of infraction because of the disobedience to that authority. God's word is meant to have a very similar effect in our lives. We come to it, and it is meant to arrest our attention and arrest our hearts, maybe even stop us in the middle of some action and cause us to give attention to his legitimate rule and his ability and power to exercise that rule in our lives as his creatures and as his people. This is what it is, I think, to embrace the authority of the scripture. And beloved, from the time African-Americans started writing in the English language, we have believed in the authority of God's Word. You see it in one of the quotes inside of your bulletin. You may have seen that quote from Jupiter Hammond. Jupiter Hammond is regarded as the father of African-American literature, and in the quote that you have, it comes from his address to the slaves of the state of New York in 1760. 1760, Jupiter Hammond, preaching to enslaved men and women, had this to say about the Bible. The Bible is the word of God and tells you what you must do to please God. It tells you how you may escape misery and be happy forever. If you see most people neglect the Bible, and many that can read never look into it, let it not harden you and make you think lightly of it and, it is a, and that it is a book of no worth. All those who are really good love the Bible and meditate on it day and night. In the Bible, God has told us everything it is necessary we should know in order to be happy here and hereafter. The Bible is the mind and will of God to men. That's good theology from a slave. Bishop Daniel Alexander Payne, one of the first four bishops of the AME Church, called the Four Horsemen of the AME Church. Bishop Payne, who ministered right here in this city for a season, right here in Baltimore, establishing churches and planting churches for um, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, he had this to say about the Bible. He's writing in his most famous sermon, Welcome to the Ransomed, a sermon delivered uh, on the sort of celebration of the emancipation of slaves in Washington, D.C. says this, Rest not until you have learned to read the Bible. And many of you will know that many, of, many an African American sought to read and snuck to read and risked punishment and imprisonment to learn to read precisely with this goal in mind, to read the Bible, what we call the talking book. Payne argued that an individual man or woman must never follow conviction in regard to moral, religious, civil, and political questions until those convictions are first tested by the unerring word of God. Payne's mind 
Bible trumps conscience, trumps your moral upbringing, trumps our political thinking, trumps our social conviction. That's the most I've ever said Trump in a long time. <laughs> it ranks higher than. <laughs> so Payne said this, Payne says, if a conviction infringes upon the written word of God or in any manner contradicts with that word, the conviction is not to be followed. It is our duty to abandon it. Moreover, I will add that light on a doubtful conviction is not to be sought in the conscience, but in the Bible. The conscience, like the conviction, may be blind, erroneous, misled, or perverted. Therefore, it is not a safe guide. The only safe guide for a man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, learned or unlearned, priest or people, is the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. Now, Payne was not known for supporting shouting and hooping. I think he was hooping right there. I think he was carried away in the spirit right there with good truth. These slaves and former slaves, poets and preachers, understood something that we must understand today. In fact, they were giving attention three centuries ago nearly to what we are giving attention to at this conference. They understood that the Bible is indeed the divinely inspired, true, sufficient, and yes, authoritative, even necessary word of God. Now what we wish to do in the time that I have here is to think about this notion of the authority of Scripture. And my hope is, is that we think about it not merely in its academic or doctrinal shape, but that we would think about it in ways that spur us on devotionally, in ways that spur us on in practically living it out. And the way I want us to do that is to look at Jesus. And to look at Jesus' attitude toward the scripture and how Jesus, who gave the word, lived under the word. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You will know this scene. The temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Verses 1 to 11. This is what God's word says. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the city, the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This section of scripture has everything in it. I mean, it's, it's got drama and suspense and cosmic conflict between our Lord and Satan. And we get a, a sense that really the universe is hanging in the balance in this exchange. 
If this goes sideways, everything's lost. If Satan is successful in his temptation and lures Christ into any kind of sin, then Christ, who was meant to be the the unblemished lamb, the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world and provides righteousness for us, has failed at his mission. Right here in the wilderness, we get a repeat of Adam's confrontation with Satan. The first Adam failed. Now the second Adam is on the scene. And right here now, notice how Satan moves or how this passage moves. It moves from the wilderness and one is made to think of Moses and Israel in the wilderness, and it moves from there to the temple. He's on the pinnacle of the temple, where God has promised to dwell with his people. And, and, and now we're starting to see not just Adam, but we're starting to see Moses in the background of this text. And, and then it moves further up into a high mountain where Satan shows Jesus all the nations and their glories and says, these will be yours if you worship me. Everything is in the balance. And if you're like me, most of the times you've heard this text preached, it's gone something like this. See how Jesus used the word in his temptations? Now you use the word in your temptations. Beloved, at best, that's a secondary application. And at worst, you try to face Satan like you, Jesus, That ain't going to end right. Not like you hope. But there is something for us to learn here in terms of how to read our Bibles as we, as we look at Jesus' attitude toward the Bible and this notion of the Bible's authority. There, there are four things I want to sort of pull out in these three quotations from Jesus as he uses the Scripture in terms of understanding how Jesus reads the Bible and how we ought to read the Bible and accept its authority. First of all, notice this. Jesus hangs on every word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, verse 4, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The words of God's mouth are the bread of Jesus' life. Every word, not a few words, not the words that are particularly easy to accept, Not the words that make him popular, but as he would say in Matthew 5, around verse 17, every, not just word, but every punctuation mark, every jot and tittle will stand until it's all fulfilled. Hangs on every word. And believing and practicing the authority of Scripture, the authority of God's Word, requires that we accept every word of it. And so this whole thing that men have sometimes done in picking and choosing in the Bible, taking scissors to it, this part I like, that part I I don't like. Well, anytime you see someone picking and choosing in that way, they have not yet brought themselves under the authority of God's word. They are trying to exercise authority over the word. That's dangerous, beloved. But our Lord reads the Bible focusing on every single word. Which brings us to a second thing. Why did he do that? Well, second, Jesus reads the Bible to live by it. Notice what the text says in verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? The verb there that is assumed, but live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Straight from God's lip right into our life. That's authority. Believing in the authority of God's word means we receive that word in order to live by what it requires. And here's the wonderful thing, beloved. To receive God's word in that way, with an intention to live by it, means, in the end, receiving life itself. 
that one of the properties of God's word is that it's life-giving. It, it, it brings to us, it inculcates to us, it, it awakens in us spiritual vigor, spiritual life, so that the one who lives by the word is made alive by the word. Let's think about our own lives for just a moment there. Think about seasons where you have not met with the Lord in your quiet times and not read the Bible faithfully. Or maybe your reading of the Bible has been dead, cold, and you've not seemed to get much out of it. Have those ever been the times where you felt most alive spiritually? Chances are those have been the times where you have felt most flat spiritually, most lethargic spiritually, most dry spiritually. And, and, and here's the thing, beloved, the only sort of cure to that flatness and dryness and lifelessness is to do the one thing that you're staying away from, to dig again into God's Word and to receive from it life and to keep digging and to keep applying until you feel from it life. God's Word brings life. And in fact, many of the Bible writers understood this. You, you think of that dramatic scene with Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. There Israel is pictured as a lifeless, dead nation whose bones are scattered across this vast field. And what does God tell the prophet to do? He says what? Speak to the bones. And as Ezekiel speaks to these bones, what happens? They, they first rattle. And then they start to get sinew and flesh. And before you know it, those dead, dry bones are a living in flesh nation. It's a picture of what God's Word does when it, when it goes out and people are brought under its authority. It gives life. We live by it and we receive life through it. Or, or we may think of Peter's comment at the end of, of John chapter 6. You know, Jesus was preaching there, and he decided he wasn't going to play with the people no more. And he started giving hard truth. And you remember what happened? He had a lot of disciples who said, you know what? That's a little too tough for me, man. It don't take all that, right? I'm going to go on back over here to the temple. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, now, will, will you leave me too? And Peter speaks up. And you know, Peter speaks up. Sometimes he gets it right, sometimes he doesn't. And he, and he, he, sp he spoke up this time and he got it right. He says, Lord, to whom will we go? And you remember what he says? You have the words of eternal life. Your words give life. We ain't going nowhere else because right here, we are hearing in our ear something that makes us alive. That's the attitude of one who receives the authority of God's word. God, I am not going away from your word because right here I'm getting what gives me life. Let everybody else forsake you and go their own way. Yet I will follow. Yet I will live by your word. That person who so declares that understands the authority of the scripture. And this is Jesus' own experience in the in the gospel, isn't it? Our Lord says things like this. I'm not come to do my will, but to do my Father's will who is in heaven. And that was his bread, the will of God. And we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane where God's word and will has taken him to an appointed place of suffering. See, beloved, to receive God's authority in his word might also mean to receive the suffering that comes through his hands. And you remember how he prayed in that garden. Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. And we identify with him in his humanity in that, don't we? Lord, this hurts. Take it away. But remember how he resolves three times in that prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is authority, living under the authority of God's word at prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And, and remember what happens. Christ is arrested, put on trial, is sentenced to death, is flogged, beaten, 
crucified in our place, and all of that is happening in fulfillment of God's Word. And as the sinless Son of God has the wrath of God poured out upon him on the cross, guess what's happening? He is purchasing life for us. His obedience to the Father's Word means life for all who believe in him. And just as God's word had promised, he was crucified, buried three days later, resurrected from the grave, witnessed by as many as 500 at one time, ascended into heaven where he rules at the right hand of God, and he's coming again to gather his church. And that word goes out, and those who have ears to hear, hear, and they humble themselves beneath God's word, placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of sin and life is the gift. Eternal life, unending life, life with God in his love is the gift. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you've not yet repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, this gospel comes to you This message about Jesus and his death for your sins and his resurrection for your justification, for your righteousness with God, this does not come to you as a suggestion. This comes to you making demands upon your life. God, who is your creator, has called you to turn from sin and to come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. If you should begin to be a Christian, then from the very moment, you will be beginning a life meant to live under the authority of God's Word. The authority of God in the gospel as he calls you to repent and believe, and the continuing authority of God through his Word as you live by every word that comes from his mouth. You see how Jesus reads the Bible. He hangs on every word. And he reads it with the intention of living by it. But there's a third thing here. Jesus reads the word in order to trust God, not test God. You see there in verse 7, Satan has given his second temptation. Jesus again quoting from the scriptures. All these quotes I think are from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6. Jesus says again, it is written... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The Lord found in the scriptures, in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, reason to rely on the Father, not reasons to test or tempt the Father. He's right there in the face of of satanic temptation, and he knows there's a significant difference between trusting and testing. You see, Trusting humbles itself under the word of God. Testing exalts itself and its desires over the word of God. And this is the remarkable thing about our Lord. He never sought to stand above God's word, but always below it, in obedience to it, gladly. He trusted the Father. Because the Father's trustworthy. And he trusted the Father's word, as we were hearing a moment ago. Because if the Father is trustworthy, then his word is trustworthy too. This is what we see with our Savior. And all the great saints of the Bible humble themselves at God's word and receive it as a means of trusting God rather than testing God. Think about King Josiah. King of Israel in 2 Chronicles 34, who comes to the throne, I believe, when he's eight years old. And they rediscover the scrolls, and Josiah calls for the reading of the scrolls and is, is convicted at the reading of the scrolls, and so he, he sends the priest to inquire of God. And, and this is how sad the situation had become. No one had inquired of God for a long time. And so the priests go and they inquire of God. And this is what God says in part in response to Josiah. He says in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 26, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Regarding the words that you have heard 
scripture. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Josiah read God's word. Israel heard God's word for the first time in a long time. And that young king, eight years old, did what was customary in the culture to signify repentance and, and a kind of mourning, a godly contrition. He ripped his kingly robes and he mourned before the Lord in conviction and brokenness at hearing God's word and having the people and himself exposed by that word. And Josiah teaches us something wonderful. Here's how we know we understand authority, but also how we know we understand grace. You know you understand grace when God's word exposes you and you go to God rather than from God. Adam and Eve didn't quite understand that. God came into the garden and spoke to them and found them out in their sins. And what did the text tell us they did? They hid from God and tried to make fig leaves for themselves, to cover themselves. But here is Josiah. Likewise, convicted and exposed, and, and what does he do? He doesn't try to, as we sang a moment ago, uh, nor of fitness fondly dream. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of try to wait for a time where he's right and can present himself to God as right in his own terms, but no, he humbles himself under God's word, and he receives even the conviction of God as invitation to God to come to him because he trusts God. He trusts his grace. He trusts God's rule and authority. That's what we want to be looking for in our own lives. To accept the authority of God's word is to humble ourselves beneath it, to trust it and God, and not to test him. There's a fourth thing we see in Jesus in Matthew chapter, chapter 4. Jesus weaves the word to worship God properly. He reads the word to worship God properly. Notice what he says in verse 10. Satan's come with his last temptation. He's often offered Jesus the, the kingdoms. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, this has all kinds of implications. This is a good sort of proof text for what many of us would call the regulative principle of worship that our worship of God ought to be regulated or ruled by God's word itself. It's another way in which we receive the authority of God. But here, worship of God is really referring not to what we do on Sunday mornings, but it's referring to our entire lives. Our entire lives are meant to be yielded up in worship and to God alone and no other. Now, beloved, here's the, here's the troubling thing about our weak and sometimes fragile hearts. It's possible to hear God's word while listening to and serving our idols. Isn't that what Satan was doing as he quoted the scripture and asked Jesus to worship him? He was twisting the scripture. And Jesus was hearing the word in a sense, but being invited to serve not God, but one who wants to put himself in the place of God. And that's what all our functional idols do. They want to take the place of God and how, have us bow to them and to serve them. And one of the places where we will know that our idol is speaking to us most clearly is in those places where we see and understand God's word and we recognize that God is calling us to an obedience to that part, but we go, you know what, I'm going to do this over here right now. That's a neon sign pointing to an idol. Doesn't matter what it is. It could even be other good things. 
You feel the Lord calling you to a season of prayer and fasting, and you feel the Spirit gently pressing you to go down on your knees to, to pray in that moment, and you sort of think to yourself, wait a minute, I haven't washed my car. I'll do it after I wash my car, because I like to keep my car clean. It's a neon line sign pointing to your idol. Wait a minute, I better answer this call from my boss, even though it's my day off, because my boss signs my paychecks as if God didn't give you that job and can't supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. You see what I'm trying to illustrate? Those places where we're called to obedience and to demonstrate the authority of God's word practically. We feel ourselves drawn or torn to serve something else. It won't likely be Satan as it was with Christ. It can be any number of things, beloved. That's a temptation to hear God's word and serve an idol. But Jesus reads his Bible in order to get his worship correct. He found reason in the scriptures to worship God alone. No rivals, no counterfeits, no partners, no idols, no exceptions. He decided in his heart that he would serve the Father only, and the purpose of the word was to help him to bow in the right direction, to face the only God, to serve him. And so he pronounces in verse 11, get thee behind me, Satan, or depart from me, Satan, and Satan loses See, there, there was nothing in Christ that could be satanically used to draw him away from the true worship of the Father. Till recently, I don't think I ever realized just how God-focused Jesus was in this passage. Did you see it there? The Lord's ears were glued to God's mouth in verse 4. His hopes rested on God's, God's heart in verse 7. And his service belonged to God's throne in verse 10. And each time the Lord applied the scripture, he actually applied himself to God. He gave himself again to the Father. And watching Jesus here reminds me of several things I need to do in my own Bible reading if I'm going to embrace the authority of God's word practically and not just conceptually. I'll give these to you. Maybe they're helpful to you as well. Number one, I very simply need to learn to hang on every word of God. The Bible's a miracle, beloved. It's a miracle of God breaking into the world through speech, but also of God preserving his word for generations. Do we realize how many kingdoms have sought to destroy this book? Here it stands. What Dr. King said about truth applies most specifically, most clearly to the Bible, that truth crushed to the ground would rise again. The Bible has been a great phoenix rising from the, the ashes of persecution and the ashes of opposition to God's church, and it just keeps rising, blazing again and again for God's people. The Bible's a miracle. We should hang on every word. How often do we find ourselves debating which parts to apply? seems to me Jesus would have us debate not if they apply, but how they apply. The if is settled. God said it, we believe it, right? God spoke it, we obey it. So you can tell if a Christian or a church takes the authority of God's word seriously by observing whether or not they apply God's word to every aspect of their lives. Wherever the word gets applied, there we see God's authority being exercised by the word. And wherever the word is not applied, there we see a failure to recognize God's authority in his word. So we should not allow ourselves to drain the authority of God's word. This is, this is starting to be, you know, I'm getting old, and, and, and the older I get, the more crotchety I'm getting. I'm getting kind of, getting kind of, I'm praying against it, but, I, you know, the old man is strong, right? And and I'm getting grumpy about some stuff. And, and, and one of the things I'm tired of sort of seeing is, 
Christians and Christian leaders being asked an important question about this or that topic and saying, let me give you a biblical worldview on this, and never using the Bible. You have reason to suspect that you might be getting some biblical truth, but you're getting a whole lot of the speaker too. Or, or the, the, the number of times that I hear, say, the biblical position on this, man, give me book, chapter, verse. And not just one. Give me, give me several in context, related to each other. You see, it ought to take us time to have to explain what God requires of us. Because he said a whole lot. He said a whole lot. And understanding this well means understanding in its, in its progressive relationship, in the progressive revelation of Scripture, and in a systematic relationship, in how the parts relate to the whole. We won't be quite living under God's authority if we're just shrinking this thing down to something that fits on a trinket. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We won't be effective on Twitter and in our soundbite culture. Because we've got too much to say and too many qualifications in order to get it right and precise so that people like Jesus submit accurately to the Lord. If we hang on every word, our references will be specific, our systematics will be robust, and our biblical theology exegetical. And indeed, we ought to hang on every word because we're waiting for the life that comes from it. Let me think back to when you were a little boy, a little girl, and you went to mom and dad, there was something you wanted for Christmas. You've been really wanting it, and you hadn't said anything about it yet. You've been waiting for the right time, and you've been seeing the commercials on television, and you've been trying not to get too excited, you know, as you see the commercials, right? Because, you know, if you get too happy, mom and dad got a habit of just saying no if you get too happy, right? And, and so you're going to let me go ask mom and dad. You finally work your nerve up, and, and you go say, you know, mom has said, you, wait, you found that moment. Mom said, what you want for Christmas, baby? She looks generous right now, eh? Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she brought it up. This is it. This is it, right? And I, I, I want rock'em, sock'em robots. That was my thing. I was just working out my issues right now. Y'all be cool. <laughs> and you ask if you can have that, not, not trying to be too eager, lest you blow it, but being eager enough to communicate you really want it. And what do you do? You wait for the next words to come from mom. You hang right there because the next words are going to tell you what your future is. <laughs> you know, if it's a rock'em, sock'em future or, or if it's going to be socks, you know. <laughs> you, you wait right there, man. And all your hopes are riding on the next word. And this is the good thing about God's word. It's not like mom. It's not like dad. Because when I was growing up, what I most often heard was, boy, I ain't got that kind of money. We'll see what we can do. Which was southern for no. <laughs> God has never said a no to you that wasn't good for you. And all of his promises are yes and amen. And you discover the promises in the book. We can read with the kind of longing of Christmas, knowing that like a good father, he's going to give us every good and perfect gift. Let us read the Bible that way, hanging on every word, asking the Holy Spirit to create desire in us for his word. Number two, I need to recognize how critical to my holiness God's word is. Jesus lives, notice, by every word of God, verse 4. His reading translated into his living. And that was critical during our Savior's temptation. So we see Jesus here using a threefold strategy resisting demonic temptation. Number one, he hides God's word in his heart so he can live by it. Number two, he trusts God implicitly so, so he doesn't take matters into his own hands. And number three, he worships the Lord God alone so that he can refuse all idolatry. And that's a good template. But as I said before, that's not primarily what this text is about. And, and, and it's important for us to observe in this text 
that when Jesus first quotes the scripture early in the chapter, Satan comes right behind him quoting the scripture, which tells you something about the pride of Satan. He thinks he's as good with the Bible as Jesus is. And beloved, he's better with the Bible than us. Let me tell you how I know that. Because in the third temptation, when he takes Jesus up on the mountain and shows him all the nations and their glory, and he says, all these things I will give to you, do you know what theologians and Christians debate? Whether or not Satan could do that. Now, once you start asking yourself if Satan can give you something, you've lost. You have lost ground. The temptation is working. Your thinking and your heart are leaning toward the thing he's promising. doesn't matter whether he can give it to you or not. You should only be receiving, I should only be receiving from God. So it just becomes terribly important that we read the Bible in its context and understand it appropriately in its context. You know what Matthew 4 is about? It's not primarily about teaching us how to handle temptation, though we can learn some things about them. Notice the three times that Satan tempts Jesus. They all begin the same way. If you really are the Son of God. That's what's, on, that's what's in contention right there. Is Jesus God's only son? Is he God the son in the flesh? Is he is the one Israel has been waiting for? Is he, the, is he the Messiah that has been promised who would bring salvation not only to Israel but to all the nations? And Jesus' successful defeat of Satan in these temptations are part of the proof that God has given us in his word, that he really is the son of God. What we're meant to see from this section, again, is not primarily how we face temptation, but how Jesus has defeated temptation for us. How he has suffered temptation like us, yet was without sin. And how he has now proven himself to be the son of God and the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I go through all of that just simply to say the important thing here to live under God's authority in his word is to understand the word in its context and to apply it appropriately. And that's how we're helped in our sanctification, in our holiness. That's how we avoid getting stuck into multiplying all these kinds of rules with the hopes that the rules make us righteous, as opposed to recognizing what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that God has made Christ to be wisdom for us, that is, our holiness, our sanctification, our redemption. And so holiness looks a whole lot like seeing Jesus as he really is in the Bible and embracing him as the source of life. We need God's word and to live under its authority for our sanctification. Finally, I must give careful attention, as we've been saying, to proper interpretation. If we don't interpret the word of God correctly, we can't live under its authority correctly. We want to live by God's word accurately, so we don't drive off into a ditch and get stuck there. Now, we could leave this building and go down the block or two as we close and maybe run into a Hebrew Israelite, Someone from the nation of Islam, any number of cult groups in the community, and they can whip out the Bible and start running and playing Bible ping pong and all the while be holding in their hands the word of life and never be receiving the life of the word. What's the difference? The difference is their weird interpretations and their jacking up of the scripture which do not lead to life, and a humble reception of this book as being about Jesus and his redemption and his salvation and his call upon our lives to live in it by grace. That leads to life, beloved. So let me ask you a question as we close. Are you reading your Bible? Number two, are you applying your Bible? Or do you need to pray to God and his spirit to awaken you afresh to dig into the book and receive the life that's in it?
If you ask him, he'll do it. And if you do it, it'll be for your joy and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, your holy word, and for Jesus, your son, who is the word made flesh. And we thank you, O Lord, that this word is a perfect treasure of all that you meant to tell us. And that by it, O Lord, even from infancy, we may be made wise unto salvation. And we thank you, O Lord, that when we hear your word, we, we hear your voice. And when we hear your voice, we hear your authority as our God and our creator. And we ask, O Lord, help us to practically, devotionally, to live in the authority of your word. To bring ourselves under it humbly. To trust it and not test it. O Lord, to receive life from it. Give us in your word what you promise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't Stephanie doing a great job leading us? Amen. Amen. And, and with such joy and delight, she has this, has this like electric smile. She's had that. Ever since I first met you, I first met you at, at Master Seminary. California. Yeah, about five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, because somebody came up early and said, hey, you remember me? I was like, no, nah, bro, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, thanks, bro. Thanks to the audiovisual Amen. team. Yeah, Appreciate let's give them. God praise for those guys. Yeah, we can, we can do that. So, Mike and Mike on the mic. All right. So she gonna, I'm going to let her ask me questions. I'm going to say one more thing. So when you go to church tomorrow, find your AV folks, whether they're serving that morning or not, and thank them for their ministry, right? Because they have the kind of ministry where you don't notice them unless something go wrong. <laughs> you know, the mic start popping and stuff. Everybody start looking back to the sound booth, you know. What y'all doing back there? Who back there, you know? Oh, he on the mic again. Oh, you know. And so go thank your sound people and encourage them for their labors, man. Amen. Thank you for that message. Uh, time and time again after we've done each session, I've just been um, amazed at the beauty of standing on God's word. Mm. Uh, from thinking about inerrancy to the canon to all the details. So thank you. So I have a couple questions digging deeper into you discussing application. Uh, what, what practical difference does taking the authority of the Bible seriously, what practical difference does that make in the life of believers? Well, well first of all, it gives you a north star. Right, so if, if the Bible is one authority among many, then you're just instantly into this realm of trying to figure out on your own little wisdom which way you should be going. Now, in our sin, we like that. Each of us go our own way, right? But if we are Christ and we have been conquered by the cross, then we don't want to just be going any other way. We, we kind of want to know the one way the Lord has called us. So the very first thing practically it does is it turns us from all the other paths which do not lead to God, to, to the one path that, that actually pleases God. Um, and so it gives us a north star. It doesn't matter what's going on. The other thing it does is it, it sort of very practically roots our hopes, not in this life, but it, reach, it, it puts our hopes beyond the reach of all our enemies, beyond the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because the Bible is telling us that, you know, in this life we're going to have tribulation. But take heart. Christ has overcome everything in this life, and he has purchased for us a kingdom. And so we are looking for that day when Christ returns, and that enables us to live this day no matter what's going on, right? And Amen. so eternity bleeds back into time in a very practical way. Eternity bleeds back into time in a practical way. Amen. Amen. All right, so with that said, what do you think there in, um, what are some areas in our Christian context culture right now where we need to recover uh, claiming the authority of scripture yeah let me let me give you two there's just sort of easy to point to uh, one is I'm thinking of first Thessalonians 4 3 so when you when you give a talk and you say give me book chapter verse you have to start doing that right but <laughs> so I think of first Thessalonians 4 3 uh, Paul writes there very clearly this is the will of God for you your sanctification that you learn how to possess your body not in passionate lust like the heathens. Uh, and he's going on there to talk about our purity before the Lord um, sexually. And so one of the things that's, that's um, really racking the church as much as it is the culture uh, is impurity and immorality um, in, in, in this area of our lives. And, and 
if Paul is saying there very clearly, this is the will of God for you, then he's telling us about God's authority there. And, and, and what we want to do is bring all the areas of our lives, including especially the intimate areas of our lives, beneath the rule of Christ and his word, right? So he says there, um, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you, right? Uh, that such things shouldn't even be spoken of in, in terms of, you know, public discourse in a, in a we're happy with this kind of way, right? So that'd be one area. The other area that seems really glaring to me is Christ's church will have to bring itself under the word in all the sort of causes related to justice. That this is a, a neglected area of study and reflection in Bible-believing churches. And so the authority in the church right now is Fox News or MSNBC or, or whatever sort of political party and its talking points um, you, you happen to prefer. Well, this is what I know about Jesus, and this is what I know about the Bible, is, is that Jesus is not a member of any party, and the Bible will cut across all the sort of political platforms in ways that sometimes affirm and in ways that sometimes reject, right? And so if we're going to be Christians related to Christ and his authority, I think we're going to have to think very carefully about what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, when he says there to the Pharisees who are bragging about tithing their mint and their cumin, he said, you should have done that while not neglecting the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice and faithfulness, right? So Jesus is saying the deep things of God's word are mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Don't neglect that. And I think many of us are a part of a church tradition that has really significantly neglected that ever since um, George Whitfield thought he could build orphanages for children without parents and use slave labor to do it, right? Or, Whit or, Wes or um, what's to do with the wig? Um, <laughs> Edwards, or ever since Jonathan Edwards decided he could write in defense of the revivals, but not write in defense of the release of slaves. Right? So we, we've, we've not thought carefully in this tradition about justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so therefore, we're very often not living under God's authority in his word. And praise God, we can actually look into the scriptures to see what mm -hmm. God has said That's right. about it, right? Amen. Um, would you, um, I know we're, we're uh, running a little short on time, I'm but sorry, briefly... We, I'm sure everyone's okay with that, right? <laughs> but uh, just briefly talk about um, some, uh, if authority is a bad word, has a negative connotation to one's upbringing, one's context, you just briefly speak about the relationship between um, keeping uh, scripture as authority, but understanding that that might be a hard word for some. That's good. Thank you for that. That's a, re that's a really good question, a pastoral question. Uh, because some of us grew up in generations that uh, had as our bumper stickers question authority, Right. And, and we're suspicious of all authority. But from a biblical perspective, authority is, is not fundamentally about control and power. That's the wrong basis of authority, a sort of motivation of authority. Biblically, authority is about love. So think of husbands and their wives in Ephesians 5. Uh, husbands are to love their wives, how? Not like Caesar ruling over Rome, but they love their lives the way Christ has loved the church, sacrificially, self-givingly. Um, and, and they are uh, to be the kinds of heads that die for the body, right? And so authority is married with love in that way. You think about how Christ rules his church. He has authority. He says, you know, Matthew 28, right? Uh, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And what does he do with that authority? He immediately says, go. Go tell all the world about my love, you know, about this gospel, about this one hope, Right? Um, and so I think, I think one of the things we have to push against in our culture is when we see the abuses of authority and the wrong uses of, of authority and the self-aggrandizing that comes along with authority, we have to recognize that's actually sin and the pattern of this world. But the pattern of the kingdom and the call of God is that those who are in authority serve, right? That we're meant to be first among one another as those who serve. Uh, and give our lives for others. So that's what Christ has done. Amen. Would you pray for us in our practical application um, and just the beauty of, of God being authority? Amen. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who lived by every word that proceeded from your mouth. And uh, though we are not him and there are things that he does that we are incapable of, yet, Lord, we want to be like him and we long to live like him. 
So help us, too, to live by every word that comes from your mouth uh, as fully and joyfully as we can. And give us grace, O Lord, to keep in step with your spirit. Uh, Let your authority be seen to be good and loving, redemptive, O Lord, and purposeful in our lives so that others may, Lord, take take your yoke upon them uh, and find it easy and find it life-giving. Do this in our lives and do this in our communities, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor T.